The Firebender's Guide to Living Life After Destiny. Written by Treffy Stilton. Read by Meisinger. Chapter 16. 15. Chapter 15. 16? What chapter are we on? Okay, I'm going to do that again. Chapter 16. There was a moment of pure shock, the type of deafening silence that only followed after destruction. Zuko rolled over, groaned, and started coughing out the dust of the rubble. He blinked away the stars in his vision. No matter how many times it happened to him, being caught by collapsing debris still managed to be awful every time in a completely new way. He shook his head. Pebbly bits rained off and rolled away on the ground. His ears were ringing. His back hurt. His insides felt like they had been liquefied and then left to recongeal like a bowl of jelly like there was marrow leaking out of his bones, organs wobbling loose where they should definitely not be. I feel bad, Zuko summarized out loud and spat out more dust. Something stirred next to him. Sokka raised his head and coughed too. Couldn't put it better myself, he said weakly. Zuko turned his head over. Sokka didn't seem too injured, though there was a cut on his brow. Probably the result of some piece of flying detritus. You okay? he asked. Peak condition, Sokka said, and launched into a severe fit of coughing that ended with him dry retching into the ground. Moving slowly, Zuko tried to extricate his limbs from underneath Sokka's. They were still lying on the ground, tangled up when he wrapped himself around Sokka to protect him from the blast. Zuko shifted his left arm. Sokka groaned in protest, and Zuko gave up. Kizia was long gone. There was no hurry. They could lie here for a little while longer. How are we... Not dead, Sokka asked when he stopped coughing. Zuko licked his right thumb and wiped off a trickle of blood from Sokka's cut, then smiled when Sokka made a disgusted face. Advanced firebending technique, he said. I call it my not-dying-from-horrible-explosions move. I invented it years ago when Zhao tried to blow up my ship with me still on it. Wow. That's right. Sokka let his head fall back on the ground. May that guy rest in agony, seriously. Rest sounded very good to Zuko right now. Sokka should never find out how close they were to actually dying. Zuko couldn't believe he pulled it off, or that they were still alive. But some survival instinct had kicked in so strongly that he was able to move without thinking. It turned out that when push came to shove, Zuko wanted to live. He wanted it very badly. 
But it was hard, though. Really hard. His eyes drooped shut again. He could hear Sokka's worried voice saying something. What are you doing? Don't pass out on me now! There was something else as well, but it sounded like a fuzzy mumble to Zuko, lost in the general ringing in his ears. Wake me up when this all turns out to be a bad dream, he mumbled, and then gave in to the flood of oncoming dark. Immediately, or what felt like immediately, Zuko opened his eyes again to someone poking his face. Stop it, he mumbled, but only got a poke in his cheek for his trouble. He opened his eyes to see a pair of blue ones staring at him. This is not the time to pass out, Sokka informed him. I'm worried you have a head injury. Let me check your pupils. Zuko obediently widened his eyes. He hadn't noticed Sokka getting up, but he was crouched over Zuko now with a flaming torch in his hand. The torch came closer. Zuko blinked in surprise. "'What's your name?' Sokka asked. "'Where are we right now?' "'I'm fine, Sokka.' Sokka scoffed. "'Just answer the question like a normal person.' My name is Zuko, and we're in the catacombs, Zuko said for the sake of it. It's five years after the end of the Hundred Years' War. I don't have any dizziness or double vision, and I feel all right except for my back and the broken tooth in my mouth. With effort, he reached up and prodded his face. His movements were sluggish and heavy. And my head hurts a little, he added. You had me worried there, Sokka said, rocking back on his heels. Zuko shrugged as best he could, lying down. Tell me you didn't shower my wounds with burning kisses. He got another poke. Twat, Sokka said, and Zuko laughed weakly. There was still a lot of blackness fizzing on the side of his vision, but he decided not to mention that for now. I could do with a drink. Oh, me too, Sokka said with great feeling. But I promised the universe I'd give it up, remember? I meant a drink of water. My throat hurts. Sokka looked shifty, and then he reached into his pocket and pulled out the remains of a very squashed peach. Come on, he said, seeing Zuko's appalled expression. The dead can make an exception this one time. Although, if you want, I could lie and say I found it lying around in one of the chambers. Who knows? Maybe this is another peach? Maybe one of the sages left it somewhere as a little underground snack. Would that help? He waved the peach in front of Zuko's face. There was still a bit of pocket lint stuck to the fuzzy skin. Zuko sighed. Eating it would be sacrilegious, not to mention totally disgusting. It went against his every instinct, but then again, 
He had hit the limits of his physical capacity. Two miraculous acts of firebending and a half dozen emotional revelations ago. His throat was so parched it was like sandpaper. He was very tired. He felt bad. Surely the universe owed Zuko a special dispensation just this once. He gave up, nodded, and let Sokka feed him a few bites from his hand. The peach was a good peach. The flesh was perfectly ripe, pale pink and white on the inside, full of juice, too. It tasted like honey and nectar, like sunlight moving over a blooming garden on the best day of summer. After the first flood of sugar entered his system, Zuko sat up and took it from Sokka, ate the last few bites and sucked the pit clean, even squashed and covered with mysterious pocket fluff. The peach was the most marvelous thing he'd ever tasted. Sokka watched without comment. So what now? Zuko said, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. Now we really get out of here, Sokka said. Forget about Kizia. Let's just try to escape in one piece. How? I told you this when we first came in here. There are more entrances and exits to the catacombs than the sages know about. It's how Kizia moved around. All we have to do is go through one of them. Sokka gave him a reassuring pat on the arm. Trust me, I've been trapped in a secret cave before. I know how to find our way out. But how? Sokka winked. All we have to do is let huge, ferocious beasts guide our way. Zuko looked wildly over Sokka's shoulder, down the passageway to the row of yellowed dragon skulls. Uh, he began, then stopped. I'm just kidding, Sokka said. It's love. Love will show us the way. He fluttered his eyelashes and pressed a kiss to Zuko's knuckles, even though it was filthy with dirt and peach juice. Zuko goggled. Sokka burst into giggles. You're too easy, he said, still grinning, and pulled out a sheet of paper from his other pocket. I have a map. In the tomb, when I was looking through the crate, I found a map of the catacombs, shuffled in with the rest of the papers. I was going to tell you about it, but then, uh... An awkward look passed over his face. And then we had our little fight, and it slipped my mind. Oh, thank goodness, Zuko said, relieved. Any time. I mean, not at that, Zuko said. It's just that a map seems more reliable than other... other methods. Words of an incurable romantic, Sokka said lightly, and Zuko rolled his eyes. For the second time that evening, Sokka helped Zuko to his feet. Zuko's legs were all pins and needles, and he staggered when Sokka let go. But after the first few steps, he could just about walk. He conjured up a small light, and Sokka studied the map with ferocious intensity. This way, he said, after spinning the paper around a few times. 
This matches up with the section we're in right now. Zuko nodded helplessly. It wasn't a real map in Sokka's hands, just a few spidery hand-drawn lines on cheap paper. If Sokka hadn't pointed it out, he would have dismissed it as random scribbles. I'm going to assume that the places marked with dots are entrances, Sokka said. I don't think this is drawn to scale, but it lines up with where I think the palace is relative to the temple. He was ready to set off, but Zuko stopped him with a hand on his shoulder. Before we go, there's one thing I have to show you here. Something I need to face tonight before I can leave. Sokka shrugged. Okay. You'll stay with me, right? Zuko asked, feeling anxious. No matter what, even if it's awful, promise you won't leave me here? Sokka grabbed his hand and pressed another kiss to the knuckles, serious this time. Something warm jolted through Zuko, sweeter than a whole orchard of peaches. Of course not, Sokka replied. Who do you think I am? They went back to the locked chamber. This time, as they went down the hall, past the old murals, Zuko made himself look at each one. He pointed to one of them. Azulon slaying his first dragon. That used to be in the far southern pagoda, he told Sokka. It used to sit opposite this one weird statue of a lion turtle with eight flippers. The statue was my favorite spot for hide-and-seek. Once, I crouched there for an hour before I realized Azula and Tai Lee had forgotten about our game. I didn't mind, though. I sat there and told myself stories about how I'd defeat my own dragon one day. Sokka studied the picture. Is this real? He asked. Do you think we passed by this dragon's bones without knowing it? Zuko hadn't thought about that. Probably, he said bitterly. Ironic, isn't it? We all knew that the dragons were the first firebenders. And then, as a nation, we hunted them to extinction anyways. I never asked why. If I grew up here, I'd want to hunt dragons too, Sokka said. What little boy wouldn't? Sokka didn't look disgusted or horrified. He looked sad. The expression in his eyes made something in Zuko's stomach twist. They passed by the mural of Sozin and the burning air temples. This one used to be in a walkway, next to one of the gates of the Garden of the Humble Pear. Zuko said, You would have passed by that spot on your way to the banquet. But I didn't see this, Sokka said. No, Zuko said, but I did. Thousands of times when I was growing up. I never thought about this, either. He scrubbed a hand over his face. There was a thought in his mind he didn't know how to articulate. 
They reached the end of the hall to stand in front of the second locked door. Zuko stared at it. He didn't want to open the door, but he also knew that if he left now, he wouldn't have the courage to come back. Is this what you want to show me? Sokka asked softly. What's inside that room? Zuko gave the door a try. The lock was unlocked already. Kezia hadn't bothered to close it after herself. What is there, anyways? Sokka asked again. He sounded afraid. More afraid than he was even when they were trapped inside the tomb. Zuko kept his gaze straight ahead. Zuko? The extinction of the Air Nomads was the finest military achievement in Fire Nation history, Zuko said finally. Our greatest deed. It was proof of the glory of our power, and proof that other races were inferior by comparison. It was evidence for why we had to spread our civilization to the rest of the world. Once he began talking, the words tumbled out like stones. The soldiers who returned home after the comet didn't come back empty-handed. They brought things back with them. War prizes and hunting trophies for display. And in the century since then, we had scholars who went to people who cleaned out what could be salvaged from the temples. It's so we could study the Air Nation army, understand how they allowed themselves to be destroyed. Objects? Some are objects, Zuko said dully. Some are what we considered to be objects. You'll see. He pushed the door open and stepped inside. The room wasn't the largest in the catacombs, about the size of a small barn or one of the palace meeting halls, but crammed with so many overflowing shelves that it seemed monstrously huge. Piles of crates and cases were stacked haphazardly on top of each other, like jumbled merchants' wares at the end of market day. Some of the things were unidentifiable to Zuko. Decorated sticks and wooden tops, things that looked like horns and pipes but without mouthpieces, little gold lockets and panels of wood mounted on axles. Others were painfully ordinary. Bowls, cups, brass lamps and bells, boxes with carved silver covers, Tangled heaps of beads made from what looked like plant seeds and chunks of turquoise, yellowed heaps of scrolls and books. There was one basket filled with nothing inside except little bison-shaped whistles made of bone. They didn't seem too bad, as long as someone didn't think too hard about where they came from. And besides, the truly bad things lied deeper in the chamber. Zuko snapped his fingers, making a few sparks fly out. A wave of nausea was rising from the pit of his stomach. 
Sokka was still staring around with his mouth open. Have these always been here? The whole time? He asked in a whisper. No, Zuko said back, his voice just as low. I can only order them collected from places under royal jurisdiction. The palace, the royal colleges and their museums, the temples and other places in the catacombs. But there'll be more in private collections. Airbender artifacts are considered quite... collectible. People find them charming. I wondered why the temples looked so empty, Sokka said. Everything's here. Some, Zuko said. And not everything here is from the temples. He didn't want to explain, but Sokka was already looking around. Behind the first rows of shelves were more stacks of enormous crates. He took the lid off one and peered over the rim, dumped out a handful of books and scrolls. Zuko, heart sinking, recognized the distinct Fire Nation workmanship on the bindings. Sokka reached in and picked up one of the cases, undid the ivory toggles, and pulled out the sheafs of paper inside. He held it up to the torch in his hand and choked at the sight. A woodblock print of a horrible little deformed figure with a lolling expression on its face a distorted blue arrow bisecting its swollen white forehead. Hua's phrenology, Sokka read out loud, being an explanation of airbending and its degenerative effects on mental faculties. He flipped through the pages and shuddered, closing the box again and dropping it to the floor. Sokka pulled out more papers, more scrolls and folios, more horrible faces. There was one pamphlet about air bisons whose diagrams of an anatomical dissection made Sokka blanch. He dropped that on the floor, too. That's enough of that, he said in a shaky voice and pushed on ahead. Zuko stayed behind, staring at the crate. Something in his chest was forcing the air out of his lungs, making it hard to breathe. None of the contents of the room was new to him. He was the one who issued the order that put these things here. But to see it all again, gathered up like this, knowing what he and his country must look like in Sokka's eyes, why hadn't he ordered it all destroyed at the time? Some delicate sensibility about not burning books? And Sokka hadn't even seen the back of the room yet. Look, Sokka whispered from ahead somewhere. Zuko shook himself. He was braced for more horrors, but Sokka was just holding up a bedroll in his hands. Quite ordinary looking. This must be where Kezia was planning to sleep tonight. Sokka said, and gave it a shake. Something small and round bounced out from its folds and rolled away. Zuko scrambled after it and fished it out from underneath a shelf. 
and he was about to show it to Sokka when he heard a gasp from further on. He hurried over, fearing the worst, knowing that it was. Sokka was in the back corner, staring at a glass case filled with charred skulls and bones. Why? he began, but couldn't finish the question. There were more cases behind the first, more remains that had once been on proud display. Some still had detailed inscriptions still attached in spidery handwriting. One case had a full skeleton inside, obscenely wrapped in a yellow and red robe. The movers had left the case tipped over on its side, so the wooden medallion around the neck had flipped up, fallen into one sightless eye socket. Property of the Royal College of Healers, read the placard attached underneath. Most of the bodies were cremated or dumped into pits, Zuko said, but some were brought back. His own voice sounded like it was coming from far away. Does Aang know about this? Of course he doesn't. Sokka grabbed his arm. Why doesn't he? If these were things from your tribe, Zuko said and swallowed dryly. If they're remnants of the last waterbenders, would you want to see them? Would you want to show them to Katara? No, Sokka said. Exactly, Zuko started, and Sokka interrupted. No, I don't want to see them, but also, no, I wouldn't be making that choice at all. My sister's not a child. She could decide for herself. A long silence passed. Sokka didn't let go of his painful grip on Zuko's arm. Katara might keep something like this from me, he said, but I'd never do this to her. Zuko tore his eyes away, tried desperately to look at something that wasn't dead bones and ashes. That wasn't the awful look on Sokka's face. There was a row of gliders leaning on a rack against the back of the wall. He shrugged free from Sokka's hold, went closer to take a look. As he approached, he saw how some gliders were decorated with charms, others with bits of colorful woven bands. Some had carvings or painted designs, tiny drawings of leaves and flowers, spiraling clouds, prayers for good luck and fair weather. One glider had a loop of blue wool twisted around it, an ivory water tribe-style charm dangling off the end. The embroidered pattern on the cord looked familiar, not unlike the ones on the front of Sokka's sealskin parka, the one he had given to Zuko a year ago. Was this charm also a present from a friend? A lover? No one alive would know. Mutely, Zuko held it out and showed it to Sokka, who sighed. Katara and I tried to hide it, too, he said, when Aang first woke up. But we couldn't lie about it forever, and in the end he found out anyways. 
It was hard, but he carried on. Even when he was just a kid, Aang was stronger than any of us. The mechanist at the Northern Air Temple made Aang's gliders now, but Aang always kept his new ones as plain wood. What about the one he was carrying when Zuko first saw him? Were there decorations, too? Little reminders of home? Zuko tried to call up an image, but he couldn't remember. And when he looked at the gliders again, he realized how tiny some of them were. Tinier than Aang's original one. The one he had carried when he was just a child. Let's get out of here, Sokka said. He pulled Zuko's arm, but Zuko didn't move. He was staring off into the darkness, feeling dizzy enough to sway on his feet. To have rebelled against Ozai. Even to have joined the opposing side during a war. That was one thing. There was heroism in that. A sort of virtue in Zuko renouncing his father. A man who by all counts was a complete monster. But to be confronted like this, with all the evidence of the past and collective atrocities of an entire nation... It was inhuman. They were inhuman. It turned out there was an evil in the world that had no human shape at all. An insidious evil, a sort of willful ignorance that made people insensate to suffering. A form of darkness that obfuscated the truth and hid itself away, but remained lurking inside every person in his country. Zuko as well. He had grown up like this, with the stories and the artifacts and the skeletons in covered cases. He had never questioned the facts he was taught about the savages in icy wastelands, or flying through the high, empty air. He needed those stories. They all did. They all knew what they'd done during the comet, but... They didn't want to think about it. Their comfortable lies buried the reality away, and in time, it ossified. I want to leave, Sokka repeated, and pulled Zuko's arm again. Let's get out of here. Zuko touched the rack of gliders again. Did you know there was a fad for collecting these? He asked. Sokka shook his head, his lips pressed in a thin line. One of the provincial governors had a basement full of these in his house, Zuko went on. He held spring blossom viewing parties every year, and every year at the end of the day, he took everyone into the house so the guests could see his collection. One year my family went, and I remember him telling us that the joy of collecting these is that no two gliders were the same. Each one was unique. Each one stood for a unique human life. Zuko didn't remember much of the party or the gliders themselves, but he remembered the soft sponginess of spring grass, the iridescence of the wide marble steps by the door, the way that everyone... Ursa and Ozai, and their children included, 
had politely oohed and awed when the governor snapped one open to show them the folding mechanism inside. The glider was very old, and as it opened, it made a cracking sound like the breaking of a bone. It was the last time my family was together before my mother was banished, Zuko said. It was the happiest day of my childhood. What does that say about us as a people? A long silence. I don't know, Sokka said. Me neither, Zuko said back, and then yelped when Sokka punched him in the arm. I just know that I want to leave, Sokka said. He gave Zuko a shake. I said I'd stay with you, but that means you have to stay with me. Let's go. Zuko rubbed his arm. The sudden jolt of pain grounded him. Yeah, he said softly. Okay. They went back through the hallway of paintings again, out through the first door, and back down through the passages of the catacombs. They were still underground, but it was easier to breathe outside of that locked chamber. Zuko took one last look at the metal door as they closed it. All of the things that he had locked away. What they meant to him. What he remembered about them. Were not the atrocities they represented, but the moments of his life that had happened around them. Zuko had accepted that all the joys of his childhood were tainted by sorrow. But he could not handle that under joy and sorrow there had always been an unspoken horror and none of those things erased the other. These things reminded him of home, but that home was gone. It would never come back. Zuko wouldn't let it. You all right? Sokka asked as they walked down the corridor. Probably not, Zuko said. What about you? Are you all right? Sokka shrugged. Could be worse. How? Sokka shrugged again. I'm not sure, actually, but let's keep going anyway. Okay, Zuko said. Okay. They pushed on through the darkness. The catacombs were bigger than Zuko had imagined, and the two of them made slow progress. They walked in silence, both of them lost in their own thoughts. Eventually, the flaming torches and stacks of bone gave way to smaller tunnels of dirt and pebbles, some so tiny they had to pass through one at a time, bent over like old men. Half crawling through one tunnel, Zuko adjusted his grip on the unconscious man slung across his back. After some debate... Sokka had convinced him that they should bring Q with them. Zuko was all for abandoning Q down there forever, but Sokka argued that with the temple entrance destroyed, there was no guarantee anyone could go back for him soon. And besides, head injuries were too serious to leave overnight. Sokka had offered to carry Q himself, but Zuko refused. He didn't think Q deserved to have his life saved by Sokka. 
So Zuko carried the man while Sokka carried the crate with the evidence of Kizia's embezzlement. We can't leave the air nomad things in the catacombs, Zuko said after a while. Sokka gave him a look with his head tilted. What are you going to do with them? I don't know, Zuko admitted. What do you think? I think you should ask Aang. Zuko nodded. Maybe, he said, thinking out loud. Maybe we need a different type of monument. Not something that glorified what we did, but something that makes us confront the past. A reminder of the truth of what we've done. When he was young, when he pictured what Sozin did, it was like seeing a mural painted on a wall. A streaking comet, a bloodless wave of fire and lightning. When he thought about the dead airbenders, if at all, he had pictured a flock of birds falling noiselessly out of the sky. It happened a century ago. Everyone, criminals and victims alike, were dead. Dead and buried and packed away in clean glass cases and printed in history books. You want to guilt-trip people into not being bloodthirsty, warmongering imperialists? Sort of. They emerged from another tunnel, and Sokka cleared his throat. You could just do it if you wanted to, he said. Guilt-trip people? Zuko asked. What do you mean? Sokka was studying the map again. Sharp left here, I think. They turned left. What I mean is, you could give up being the Fire Lord, Sokka said, picking up the conversation again like nothing had happened. The Jasmine Dragon's a nice tea shop and all, but your uncle isn't going to pick a tea shop over his country. If you stepped down, Iroh could do it. Why would I do that? Sokka made a disgruntled noise. Because it makes you so guilty and so unhappy that even the universe feels bad for you. There's more to life than being happy. Sokka looked annoyed. Not this destiny and honor bullshit again. Tell me then, what's better than happiness? Duty? Pride? Zuko thought for a bit. A clear sense of purpose? There's no shame in letting go of pride, Sokka argued. And there's no shame in admitting that your people can get on just as fine without you. Sometimes people don't need you as much as you want them to. Admit it. I bet some part of you just enjoys swanning around, telling people what to do because you rule this stupid country. I really don't, Zuko said. Sokka said nothing, just rolled his eyes. Zuko sighed, but he didn't look away. He made himself look at Sokka's face. Really look. Really pay attention to what was going on around him. Even by the low light of his torch, 
Sokka had insisted Zuko conserve his energy and stop firebending. He saw how Sokka's eyebrows were furrowed together, how his mouth was twisted into a funny shape. You know, there are lots of people who need you, Sokka. Zuko said carefully, I need you. He hoped he was saying the right thing. Their eyes met and Sokka smiled, only a little sadly. Thanks, Sokka said after a while. It's true. They went on trudging. Zuko hoped they were getting close to the exit. Q was heavy, and Zuko's shoulder muscles were burning. And exactly as Zuko might have expected from the most annoying man in the world, Q remained stubbornly awake at times when Zuko wished he'd be unconscious, and stubbornly unconscious just when Zuko could do without the additional strain on his back. He squinted at the ceiling overhead. Was he imagining it, or was the texture of the rock changing? The ground felt like it was sloping upwards, too. We can switch if you want, Sokka said. I'll carry Q for a bit. You take the box. Even secret masked vigilantes get tired sometimes, Mr. Blue Spirit. Zuko adjusted Q's weight on his back. He was tired. Every part of him ached. But he was strong enough to push on. Don't worry about it. Nothing wrong with accepting a bit of help, Sokka said, but he didn't force it. He studied the sheet of paper again. Just hold on. I think we're getting close. They were getting close. The night was nearly over. Dawn was on its way. Zuko didn't need the map to feel how the air was beginning to stir over his face or to sense the sun rising over the sleeping world above them. Together, step by step, he and Sokka continued walking forwards. They were winding a path through the catacombs, heading away from the darkness, going up towards the light. That was chapter 16, a very heavy but very important chapter in this story. Um, thank you so much for listening. I wanted to quickly shout out Apocryphine for leaving me such a lovely voice note. It um, really made my night last night and um, also is responsible for this coming out as soon as it is because I felt so bad leaving you on that cliffhanger. So I hope you enjoy this. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you to Chuffy Stilton for letting me record this. Thank you to my girlfriend for being asleep. If you liked this story, you can leave a comment or kudos on AR3. Also, you can leave a comment on Chuffy Stilton's fix so she knows how you're enjoying the story so far. You can find me on Tumblr as my own zinger. Apparently, you can leave me a voice note. Stay safe out there, though, kids. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're having a good night. 